0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, this is Dan Harris. I am a fidgety, skeptical newsman who had a panic attack live on Good Morning America. That led me to something I always thought was ridiculous, meditation. I wrote a book about it called 10% Happier, started an app, and now I'm launching this podcast to try to figure out whether there's anything beyond 10%. Basically, here's what I'm obsessed with. Can you be an ambitious person and still strive for enlightenment? Whatever that means. Hey, it's Dan. Uh, our guest today, or my guest today, I guess I can say it's my guest. Today. This is kind of like my show. Um, is Brian Koppelman. He is the co-creator of the new show on Showtime called Billions, which is a great show. If you're not watching it, you should be. Uh, He's also written a bunch of movies like Rounders, which is a cult classic, Ocean's 13, Runner, Runner. He's also, and this is important given the context, a meditator. uh, And meditation shows up really prominently in Billions, where in the first episode you see two of the main characters. One is a hedge fund billionaire and the other is the U.S. Attorney's uh, out to get him. Both of them meditate. Uh, So, Brian... Thanks for coming in. Hey, Appreciate it's it. It's
1: my, my real pleasure to be here, man.
0: I just met you a couple minutes ago. I already really like you. Yeah, we're like best friends. We could it's be friends. Yeah, we actually terrific. could be friends. Well, you have
1: the same drum kit that I, I can't have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there is. So we're in my office. I should have said that at the beginning. We're in my office. It was the first time we're doing um, a podcast in my office. And I have an electronic drum kit. The lame, that, that makes me look... 75,000 times cooler than I actually am because the truth is I've never played it because until today it was blocked off by like boxes and pictures, which in, in in anticipation of your arrival, we actually hung up the pictures.
1: I just love the idea that you have it because it says something about exactly the right kind of aspiration for how you want to spend your day. Like mm-hmm. even if you never can, the idea that it's possible that you could put the headphones on. Crank up uh, Back in Black and try to play it in
0: your office at ABC News is awesome. But doesn't it doesn't it kind of suggest that I'm like really not into actually working?
1: No, it's the right kind of silliness. Right for a meditator, it's the right kind of silliness. It's I think the sort of Dada spirit of that is really a good thing. And uh, no, I think um, there's no question that you need uh, in any kind of hard endeavor that requires a certain kind of focused creativity. The uh, opportunity to blow off the exact kind of steam that playing the drums allows you to blow off uh, is probably should be required. It shouldn't be something you have to uh, excuse.
0: I just love that you just added a sheen to my distractedness and laziness. Um, so l- let's talk about meditation because you brought it up and because this whole show is about meditation. Um, you, As I said, the two main characters right in the pilot are, are seen meditating. One is a, a hedge fund guy and the other is a U.S. attorney. Why did you have your characters do this?
1: I mean – you know, for a, a few different reasons, um, story-wise and character-wise, it, it makes sense because as you do even a little research into the world of um, high-performance uh, New York, Greenwich, Westport people, um, you find that they're chasing—they're—they're chasing. Uh, they're, they're If—if—if chasing if, if not inner peace, they're chasing a kind of uh, actualization as performance enhancement. And one of the the key things that they seem to look to is uh, meditation. So that from it, it fits the world and it's true to the world. Dave and I are, are David Levine is my creative partner. Uh, he and I um, b- both practice transcendental meditation. And so does and Andrew Sorkin. Andrew Sorkin is a third, third co creator as well. Um, he also does meditation though. Um, Maybe you have to ask him how how, he's told me it's TM. I thought, yeah, he does TM, TM or he certainly has done TM. Uh, and um, so and we have found tremendous benefit uh, in it, and um, would go to events in New York occasionally, watch people speak, look at the ways in which people are using meditation now, and um, you know, there was this idea that, uh, or there is an idea people carry around that it'll necessarily make you a kinder person or a gentler person or um, a more giving person. I mean, in fact, they don't even promise in TM. They make none of those promises. That it'll make you more of the best of what you are is what they promise, which seems like a, an idea really um, that's really fits the hedge fund world and the world of prosecutors who um, are driven by the kind of ambition that our characters are, are driven by.
0: So there are... I want to talk uh, uh, at length about what meditation does for you. But there are a lot of people, and I hear from them, who uh, are critics of the growing popularization slash commercialization of meditation. And the idea that uh, masters of the universe and people who are complete jerks would be using meditation not to make themselves better, uh, kinder people, but to make themselves better at what they already are. For example, your U.S. attorney character... Played by Paul Giamatti, you see him meditating, and in the next scene, he threatens to put his father in handcuffs and arrest him. So this this is not making him a kinder person, unless his baseline is incredibly low. Um, so, you, what is your thought about? Well, he does say,
1: "I love you, Dad."
0: He does. He does. He right does before say he says, "Right before he threatens him, <laughs> I love you, Dad." So, I'm not sure that's a mitigating maybe... uh, uh, mitigating detail. But do you th- do you have any problem as a guy who meditates with people using? meditation just to make themselves more effective even if they're going to be bad actors in the world
1: how should they use it well i mean we say i'm not not comfortable with anyone using uh anything to be a a bad actor in in the world right but um i mean someone could decide to drink uh you know eight cans of coca-cola and go get all hopped up and do something uh bad but um look meditation is a tool so and it's a really effective tool uh and so someone's going to use that tool uh to be more to me, to be more of what the, they are, to help them in their own aims. Now, is it possible that if you really pursue meditation and you are doing TM, so you're doing it forty minutes a day, that perhaps some uh, uh, thoughts or some feelings of calmness, or that your cortisol levels will adjust to a place where um, you're just naturally uh, a, hair, a little less hair trigger? Yeah, could that be nicer for the people around you? Yes. But I don't have – I don't think that there is a value, positive or negative, in terms of societal good to any of these things. There's not a societal value to yoga versus uh, uh, doing sprints or Tabata, right? It just has certain eastern accoutrement that makes us think uh, that it must be uh, more uh, uh, peaceful somehow. I don't necessarily think that that's that's the case. Uh, Look – there's philosophy you could read alongside a meditation if you want there're a ton of other things you can do but what i've found it to do for many people is just make them more what they are so I w- or truer like a more distilled version
0: it's possible that i disagree with you but but i want to think out loud i want to because...
1: understand how yes Teach. okay tell so, me, so i'm not tell sh-
0: me. i'm not sure so let me think out loud but before i think out loud i think it might be useful to define terms because – so you're talking about transcendental meditation, which is the type of, type of meditation you do. And just just for the uninitiated, I should explain that transcendental meditation is derived from Hinduism, and it was popular – basically invented, if you want to use that word, by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. That, may, that name may be familiar to some of our listeners slash viewers because he was the guy who was, for a brief period of time, the spiritual guru to uh, a reasonably well-known rock band known as the Beatles. Uh, and so he kind of rocketed to global uh, fame as a consequence of that. So he was, te- he was teaching transcendental meditation, uh, which, again, is a, basically a form of Hindu meditation, which uses a mantra, which is a silent word you repeat to yourself. And as you repeat this word to yourself, often in conjunction with your breath, you can achieve this level of concentrative absorption that allows you to shut out the discursive thinking mind and can put you in touch with... Uh, sort of levels of calm and even bliss and maybe even creativity that heretofore were unavailable you know to you're me. not
1: chasing bliss in tm um as you're meditating right one of the one of the sort of central um tenets of uh, tm is that what happens in that 20-minute period ha- ha- the way in which you perceive what happens doesn't really matter so that I am not looking for a blissful state. All I'm looking to do is say that mantra to myself, and if thoughts come, I can they can, they can exist, and then they'll move past. And uh, I just keep saying the mantra. But what happened to me, and I'm not a spokesman for TM. I'm an first of all, I'm an atheist, and I'm like a hardcore atheist. And one of the first things I said when I went to talk about learning this was um, that the cult like aspects of any organized meditative group uh, freak me out. Uh, You know, but you don't have to believe in any sort of uh, ideas that came from uh, Hinduism. You don't have to uh, believe that the Maharishi had uh, tapped into some mystical thing at all, but he you can look at the you can look at the EEGs. You can look at the scientific studies that show what happens to cortisol levels when people do this,
0: or blood pressure,
1: blood pressure, cortisol levels, mm-hmm. heart rate, all these things that that just happen. And you know the controlled studies. I mean, I know you've gone through this stuff, but uh, you know, if you just sit quietly for twenty minutes, there is some benefit to that and breathe. But if you sit quietly and repeat the mantra, I think there are more uh, tangible benefits that are greater than if you don't. And for, for me, it was a salve for uh, and a way to control anxiety. Uh, and um, I found that the physical manifestations of anxiety just uh, dissipated by about eighty-five or ninety That's percent. Phenomenal. That's great. And it, so that was a gigantic life change uh, to not get uh, feel a fluttering stomach, to not get uh, stress uh, headache. Were to, you a like were you that.
0: a G- JIA Jew in agony?
1: That's pretty good. Um, uh, well, I'm an atheist, but I am a Jew. G- I mean, I guess I, w- I was raised Jewish, um, and culturally, a I, Jew. I didn't make
0: that term up. with some, was some of my Hebrew school friends. When
1: said. no, I guess when uh, when a fascistic leader comes to power and decides to kill the Jews, he'll kill me, whether I identify as Jew or not. Fair so enough. yes, I, I guess uh, by that definition, I am. No, you know, wh- whatever the anxieties are, of being someone trying to make a living uh, in show business. Or more to the point, like a a parent who loves his kids, any kind of outsized worry that I might have. Um, It doesn't mean I don't still have concerns, right, or I don't still worry as we all do. I don't still, uh, I'm not still aware of uh, the, um, you know, thin uh, existential situation we all find ourselves in. But the physical manifestations, the actual sort of way that I walk through the world and feel changed a dramatic amount when I started meditating after probably three weeks of uh, meditating.
0: So just back to the sort of c- clarification of terms, when I described TM, I've never really done TM, so when I described it, did I describe it more or less accurately? Yeah,
1: 20 minutes, You 20 minutes twice a day, the, as soon as you wake up in the morning and then at some point in the afternoon before dinner, um, you, I sit quietly, close my eyes, and
0: uh, repeat a mantra for about 20 minutes. And so the difference, and this this sort of goes back to what I was saying before about how maybe I disagree with you, but I want to yeah. kind of talk it out. Um, the difference is that the kind of meditation I practice is called mindfulness meditation, which is derived not from Hinduism, but from Buddhism. Um, and actually, if, to be honest with you, um, I'm, I'm a Buddhist, right? But, but, but that kind of means more and less than you might think. I mean, I don't view Buddhism as a religion. It is practiced as a religion by some people, but... I believe in Buddhism is something to do, not something to believe in. And I too, I wouldn't know. I don't know if I call myself an atheist, but more like a respectful agnostic. So I don't believe in anything I can't prove. Um, although I'm willing to entertain other people's arguments on behalf of those uh, unprovable metaphysical claims. Um, so in Buddhism, in fact, the argument is that you should uh, that there is an ethical component. But the eth- the interesting thing about it it is not a finger wagging ethical component. It is that if you act like uh, a jerk, we're not allowed to swear here, so the use the words I would use otherwise I can't use. But if you act like a jerk, it screws up your meditation practice because it's very hard to concentrate when you're trying to keep your lies straight or dealing with a, mou- a so large of so we dramatize that on
1: the show. Um, uh, there are there's a moment in the show a couple episodes in where Damian Lou, it's it's our version of, of The king trying to play, uh, trying to pray in in Hamlet, um, uh, which is not a strictly Buddhist text, but I think (laughs) has the same idea. uh, Universe attached to it, right? Yes. Uh, Hamlet, and and so um, when uh, there's Damian Lewis's character, Bobby Axelrod, is in a particularly tight spot, um, he is trying to uh, meditate and he can't, and you see it. So yes, of course, your your life bleeds into your meditation practice. Your meditation practice bleeds into your life. But uh, what, I would, what, what I don't like is the fake spirituality that gets grafted on to this kind of practice. So that people, I don't uh, agree with this idea that if you meditate, you will become a better person, a more spiritual person, whatever that means. So for me, it's simpler. Like the more I can reduce this stuff down and distill it, the more you can make these things simpler. It's basically breathing with some stuff attached to it. It'll probably make you feel better. If it makes you feel better. Maybe you'll be nicer to people. Wouldn't that be great? Like, but I uh, I don't think you can say it's going to make people nicer. It's like you know what? If you have less anxiety and less, most people, given less stress, less anxiety, clearer thought, are going to act like better versions of themselves. But I don't think you can promise it.
0: I think I would I would agree with that. Like ninety eight percent, I would give that a huge amen. The only thing I would say is that. That there is a difference between, and I don't fully understand this because, again, I don't know enough about TM to speak about it with authority, so I want to be clear about that. But my understanding about the difference between TM and mindfulness is that mindfulness goes with extreme prejudice at mindfulness, which is lowered emotional reactivity. And while I believe there's a huge mindfulness component to, um, to TM, because every time you notice that you're thinking and you you just notice that these are just not it, the awesome. you, you go back, it, it does you make you, you much less reactive for absolutely sure. because you see that the voice in your head is just like a, a just a compulsive well, you liar. know when they look
1: at the eegs the mindfulness lights up these certain parts of the brain that are targeted towards empathy and tm lights up a why a, a, a broader area so it includes that area but uh, absolutely fires other things as well yeah um I, uh, many friends of mine practice mindfulness um i you know, what, what drew you to that practice as opposed to TM or one of the others?
0: Uh, the science. Um, there's definitely some science around um, TM that, that appears to be quite good. I mean, look, I think, in fact, all of the science around meditation needs to be delivered with a big grain of salt because it's in danger at times of being hyped um, because it's really in its early stages. But having issued that caveat, I think most of the science has really been done around mindfulness. And initially what I liked about mindfulness meditation was it is – Is really thoroughly secularized, whereas TM is associated with a sectarian organization, is promulgated by the Maharishi. And so for me, as a pretty hardcore, um, uh, you know, I was raised by scientists, I'm married to a scientist, mindfulness seemed like the more interesting thing. Also, I was reading a lot about Buddhism and I thought that the philosophy, the sort of intellectual infrastructure of Buddhism was really compelling, so I was also drawn to Buddhist meditation. Yeah. But I'm not as snobbish about it. I actually think mental exercise of whatever variety you choose should you should do.
1: Yeah, I just knew I needed the technology. Like I needed some access to it and TM, I had friends who'd done it. Um, Friends of mine introduced me to Bob Roth, who runs the David Lynch Foundation. I'd read David Lynch's book, really, Catching the Big Fish. And his book really spoke about the connection between um, his art and meditation in a way that was incredibly compelling. And that and a few other things, Russell Simmons' book as well. Russell, who'd lived this really big kind of crazy life, really saw huge changes and became, by his own account, a much better person Mm. through TM. And he also had studied with Bob uh, Roth from the David Lynch Foundation. And so um, I got in a room with Bobby, and I I asked him all these questions, you know, um, about its ties to uh, religion. And they really um, – they no longer uh, really draw that connection. They draw the connection to the – Maharishi definitely brought it to America, and they love him and regard him. But they do view it as a technology that he figured
0: out. Right? Yeah, I don't Actually, you asked me why I was drawn to mindfulness over um, over TM. Those are the reasons why at the time, six years ago. But I don't have a yeah, dim I view did of the practice. I did a one meditation.
1: You know, Tony Robbins does that thing, the one meditation that he brought over. from Yeah, I did that once with mm-hmm. Tony, and that was a really great experience, too. But TM, a repeat, for me, is like a practice I can repeat. I've always – uh, Siddhartha is one of my favorite books, mm-hmm. and the idea of the Buddhist kiss and that kind of enlightenment, because I know you're interested in this idea of enlightenment, is really compelling. It
0: just seems like a lot to get there. <laughs> and you got to go out to the river.
1: and I mean, There's just a lot of stuff. You it's have to be lot. hungry for a long time. It's a lot. It's a lot of stuff that has to
0: happen. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't even so – I'm in this weird position of being interested in pursuing something, enlightenment, that I don't even know it's, if it's real. So it's it's a kind of a funny dilemma, and yet my my hair is on fire with curiosity about it.
1: Who have you met who who you think is enlightened?
0: I've never met anybody who claims... Well, actually, I'm not asking. I have met I've met somebody who uh, who claims to be uh, kind of in the area of fully enlightened. Uh, I my meditation teacher. When you ask him. Are you fully enlightened? This is a guy named Joseph Goldstein is like a Menchee Jewish guy from here in New York, went to Columbia, and joined the Peace Corps, and then ended up like in Thailand finding meditation 50 years ago, and he's been teaching it ever since. Um, he comes from a school of Buddhism where these these four levels of enlightenment, these four experiences that you need to have before you're fully enlightened. If you ask him, where are you on this spectrum, he'll say, casually, somewhere between the first and the third. But you didn't ask, you asked about, who do I think is actually enlightened? And I have to say that of all the human beings with whom I've ever had contact, Joseph Goldstein is the closest to being sort of behaviorally. His he, he behavior, attitude, speech are all things that I emulate on my best days. That I just. Clarity
1: of, clarity of thought, cares about what he should care about. Yes. Uh, doesn't sweat the uh, stuff that he shouldn't care about. Yes.
0: I mean, I've seen him on having bad hair days. He would joke that he doesn't have that much hair. Um, the I've you know I've seen him get you know mildly persnickety about stuff, but not really that much. And I just the, the the innate, uncontrived integrity to the man is hard to describe. And so, if, to me, that gives me some confidence, even though I'm not sure that enlightenment is real or this whole map that he's that he subscribes to is a real thing. I don't know. Yeah, As soon as you
1: start, I mean, to me, like know. as soon as you start laying out a, uh, a metric by which to measure, I'm checking out. I mean, there's something about that that feels like um, belts in karate or something. And that, uh, you know, nobody who's really good at that stuff ever talked about the moment they went from the blue belt to purple belt or something as the thing, right? The people who really can practice it were on a different kind of continuum. That was only about learning and knowledge and uh, mining their abilities. So to me, um, when I've met people occasionally who seem to really have the ability to be present, because I think you to me I think you can really just really take it down to can I exist right here in the present, right now with my full like empathy and all my antenna out and ready? to just, like, react, listen, not worry about the consequences from external forces. Can I be right here? That's really challenging. But that's the closest thing that I can imagine to the idea of that kind of enlightenment, which is, like, to live without fear for even those little moments. And so if you can have two seconds where you're living without fear of judgment, then you have those. If you can look at somebody else and really be there because if you can just be present, you'll do the right thing, right? Because you're not thinking about the other stuff. So then you can be really good. You can help. Um, and so there are very few people I've met who uh, really are like that. I mean, you know, there's uh, Teddy and Salinger's short story, uh, but that's not a real person, sadly. <laughs> He's enlightened. Oh, it's good that you know that. He's enlightened. I mean, there have been times that uh, I, I haven't uh, thought so. but. Um, And and, and and to the extent that meditation allows you to string a few more of those moments of presence together, then perhaps it's a road toward that kind of enlightenment. But if you go back to Siddhartha uh, and the idea that um, the chasing it, right? Govinda's chasing it the whole time. Siddhartha's not chasing it. He's just following in a very present way what feels... uh, like the the thing he needs to do and of course that leads him to it and it's not something you can share other than by a kiss and so by a kiss that transfers the feeling not any kind of knowledge that that you can gain so you know for some people it's listening to a great song or reading a book that transports them and maybe in that like little moment that lingers after you finish a great piece of art There's a moment where you're just, like, right there. And maybe that's the closest to enlightened that we get to be. So whatever ladder you need to climb, like, whatever that thing is, is worth trying, I think, Um, as long as the the idea of trying doesn't become the thing, right? As long as we remember the goal is to not be trying. It's to just be right here.
0: Well said. All of that. And it's also possible that there are... That there isn't a thing called enlightenment, but there are things called enlightenments, and there may be lots of different. Uh, experiences. You should brand and sell those things. Man. I actually think you really somebody should. is selling enlightenment. Get out there and do it. I believe my mother-in-law actually gave me them in my Christmas stocking. Um, I, I married a non just um, anyway. But back, to, but but, but I, you raised something, and I just want to ad- uh, address, which is you talked about your your worry about like a map. That you wouldn't want to be part of that. So let me just play devil's advocate in defense of the map um, and the maps because in the various religious traditions within Buddhism but also I believe within the mystical strains of of the Abrahamic faiths, there are this sort of stepwise progression toward – you know you you can start with a few moments of presence and empathy but then you can get to protracted periods of it and then you can have it become not just a state but a trait and and so the argument for the map is that actually you can do things practices and that outcomes will there will be predictable and reliable outcomes. So the maps to which I'm referring don't involve like you have to study with this person you have to pay x amount of dollars at this point. What they are is simply monastics over 2600 years have found and this I find truly fascinating that if you sit and do the the practice in a certain way certain experiences will happen in your mind reliably and predictably. Again, I don't know if there's any truth to this cuz I haven't had these experiences. But it is fascinating to me that there's something going on, apparently, in the human mind as a baseline capacity that you can have these experiences if you sit and do follow the instructions. And that this has been happening for millennia is, is a really, really interesting thing, again, if it's true. Um, so I don't, I'm don't i not referring to some sort of shoots and ladders type of thing where you have to study with X person and pay this fee and then X is revealed to yes. you. That's not really what I'm interested
1: no, in. No, and even as a skeptic, which I am – Like, I can read Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within, and I can find the stuff in there that's useful. And I'll just – I like to look at those things as like, well, is there a discovery that someone's made about like a tool or technique that I can try? And then I'll be able to measure whether it's uh, helpful or it helps me find a direction in my life. And so I I definitely look for that stuff. I'm more skeptical of it when it's in the religious – sphere because i i that stuff's been used to even every religion has been used to control big groups of people
0: the taste the mediterranean sales event is going on now through march 19th at whole foods market it's a store-wide event packed with flavor my family and i are regulars at whole foods market we've got one i think less than a mile and a half away from our house this taste the mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I love and share your skepticism. I failed, I think, as a podcast host to... Do one of the primary uh, things, which is to get get give our audience a sense of like how you became who you are so let me uh, let me just say a few things about your past and then let you pick it up from there. I know. You went to Tufts, you grew up here in New York City, your dad was on Long Island Long Island sorry, your dad was a music executive, yes and when you in in college, I understand it, you actually started getting interested in in um, uh, recruiting artists. You discovered Tracy Chapman if I, if I have that correct. I did
1: uh, but it wasn't yeah um, so I started going um, to uh, the recording studio with my father when I was a very little boy. It was an incredible thing to get to do uh, and in fact, there was a little Easter egg in in. For my dad only in the last episode of uh, Billions, someone says that uh, Bobby Axelrod has uh, Laura Mars eyes, and my dad produced the theme song from that movie, *The Eyes of Laura Mars*. And so, um, and it works great because his eyes are fade away eyes. It all worked great. People love the line, but um, and I didn't tip it to him. And I got a text from my dad saying like, "I can't believe you put Laura Mars in," which was great. I remember falling uh, asleep before they started recording that on the studio couch, and Jeff Skunk Baxter, one of the great musicians of all time played this guitar solo at the end of that track and um, I was probably nine years old and I remember just sitting up and watching him do it over and over again and uh, it was a mind-blowing experience but when, when I was in college um, it was at the time that uh, so because I was around music and listening to songs all the time and an obsessed music fan I learned um, how to figure out what was good I, I, I learned about what made somebody a good songwriter a good singer I, we would talk about it all the time and I spent hours and hours listening closely but then when i was in college i was very involved in student government and um colleges particularly in the northeast uh there was a big movement uh they the endowments were invested uh many of them in companies that did business in south africa this is mm-hmm. during apartheid mm-hmm. and so i was one of the two or three people who led the movement on my campus for divestment uh which was to get the Uh, boards to agree to divest from these companies that were doing business in South Africa because the endowments were, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. whatever. And in doing that, I organized an all-day boycott of classes and got speakers from all over New England to come and speak. And uh, a friend of mine uh, named Peter Zizzo uh, said there's this folk singer that I might want to go see because she might be great to play at this rally and Mm. I'd like her. And I went to see her and it was Tracy Chapman. And um, I got... I I broke down in tears watching her perform because my whole life had set me up to recognize what it was that she was able to do. And, I mean, she played Talking About a Revolution that night. And uh, so I got Tracy to play the rally and then spent the next two and a half years trying to get her to agree to let me record demos with her and um, to make record. And uh, then I brought her to New York and introduced her to my dad and got him to fly up. It took a long time, but that did end up becoming that first huge Tracy Chapman
0: album. And... You then spent many years post-college, as I understand it, as an A&R guy, I was an A&R guy guy in the
1: music business. I went to law school at night, and um, and then when I turned 30, uh, I mean, we're skipping steps, but basically when I turned 30, I realized that if I I didn't, my first child was born, our first child, Amy and my first child, and uh, I looked at my son, he was nine months old, and I I realized that there was a big lie, which was I I was going to tell him to grow up and chase his dreams and I realized I wasn't chasing Mm. mine I realized I wanted to be an artist and that if uh that that I if I if I didn't go out and chase it somehow if I didn't commit to it I wouldn't be able to tell him that look him really in the eye and I realized I was a block writer I'd always been a blocked writer for a long time and I um I realized that uh if you if you're a blocked writer um it, it becomes toxic and that toxicity when that dream kind of dream dies that toxicity spreads and you end up I think becoming toxic to the people around you. And I didn't want that. I wanted to be, like, a great husband and a great father. And so that's when my best friend and I went into a basement. We agreed to meet in a basement every day, and we wrote our first movie, which was Rounders.
0: And the the research for that movie was involved. You are getting involved in I was playing uh, a lot of poker. Yeah, so. Years of poker. Underground poker. Yeah. And so how did that That was all
1: part of, like, the, the realization that I wasn't happy. I see. The realization that I wasn't living the life I was supposed to be living was... I found myself in my office one night, and um, I like gained weight, and I'd never been a cigarette smoker my entire life, and i was I was twenty nine. I would never been a cigarette smoker. so I was like smoking and uh, I was playing cards like and every opportunity I had, and I realized what the problem was. The problem was I wasn't living the life I was supposed to live.
0: so you've got, uh, you've gone on and built a, a, a fantastic writing career. Uh, so you said that was at thirty you're forty nine now I'm 49, so you're, you're and nineteen
1: up- years of uh, nineteen years of doing this. Um, yeah,
0: and and when when did the meditation start? So, what I did
1: then, when I was thirty, I wasn't meditating yet. I was doing something very close to it, which I still do, which is Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, which is these I, uh, free writing for a half an hour in the morning, three longhand pages where you write anything that you want to write. You in fact you can't censor it. It's not what you want to write. It's just what you happen to write. And so there's something very uh, meditative about that practice because you are not censored, you're free-flowing, you're not in any way reacting to the words. Anything that comes into your head, you're putting out. And for for me, it has a centering effect. And I started taking very long walks. And so I did those things, and that's when I read Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within, to try to figure out uh, why I wanted to do what I wanted to do and how. And I started meditating five years ago. Um, And... uh, because I felt like the stress and pressure of all this stuff was becoming intrusive. Uh, and um, I'm always looking for a way to, like, fine-tune whatever it is that I do as a, you know, for me as a parent and husband and then as an artist. And, um, well, I guess, as I say, when I read that book by David Lynch and then read Russell's book and then talked to a few other people, um, I, I had the thought that I, I should really investigate it and, and try it.
0: Does it help with creativity? And exactly what is the mechanism by which it helps with creativity?
1: Well, being... So anxiety and fear to me are the greatest blocks to creativity that I know. Because uh, for, for me, I need to be in a state where where I feel free, uh, where I don't feel burdened. Um, and... Um, where I don't feel the pull to the monkey mind, right? And to those where I don't feel the pull to that stuff, to reactive thinking. And so it helps because I think, you know, the science says it changes your cortisol levels and it does all this stuff to make you feel less anxious. Um, And then also there are, I've just found a few different times and you don't push for it. In fact, it's the opposite, right? You're just saying a mantra but sometimes I'll be sitting there and like the answer will just show up or it'll show up 10 minutes later and I mean an answer, a huge answer to something that happens in the season finale of Billions just you know I did all the stuff that I always do to generate ideas and then I remember I just sat down and closed my eyes and like this whole thing just popped into my head as I was meditating and um,
0: did you stop meditating get up? it's funny right I now? asked
1: Bob Roth the other day what do you do And he said, if it's really one of those ideas, you stand up and you write it down and then you come right back and meditate, get it out of
0: your head. Why do you think TM specifically has taken off in such a big way in among celebrities and and also like uh, in Hollywood generally?
1: Well, you know, Tim Ferriss, I don't know if you know Tim Ferriss. I don't know personally. He's a friend of mine and uh, he says that it's like seventy. or over, more than 75% of, of his guests, and he, you know, he interviews all these incredibly high-achieving people, they do it.
0: Do TM or meditation? M-
1: meditation, but my, I think a huge percentage of them do TM. First of all, it's very simple, right? The fear many people have with meditation, mindfulness, is everyone who does that kind most people who do your kind of meditation constantly talk about how hard it is. Man, people who do TM constantly talk about yeah, yeah. how easy it yeah, is. Yeah. And we're not selling because I get nothing by talking about it it's just easy and so it's easy and let's say for the sake of argument let's say that you're uh maybe there maybe there's slightly more benefit to you than to me if you're looking at the science or whatever maybe mindfulness practiced every day um p- correctly let's just say for the sake of it gives you five percent more of something
0: i don't know that to be true. I, just no so i don't, mean, don't even yeah.
1: think that that's true yeah. but i'm saying let's say that it does The thing is, I know I'm not doing the stuff that I'd have to do to do the mindfulness. (laughs) TM, I just to sit down and say a mantra, and whether I can do it or not doesn't matter. All I have to do is say the mantra to myself. You can't fail at TM. The whole point of it is that you can't fail. The whole way you relax into it is to know, I don't have to feel like it was a good meditation. I don't have to um, succeed at blocking thoughts out. I don't have to notice my breath on my upper lip. You know? I mean, I was an actor all through college, and so we did stuff that was similar to mindfulness. You did the breathing stuff, and I hated all of it. TM, I love how I feel afterwards, and I love every part of doing it. It's, um, look, in our culture, I think we feel like if something's not hard, it's not worth doing, maybe. And, or how can I make gain if it's not challenging? TM is great because it's simple to do, you just have to carve the time, and you get results. So, uh, I think that's why it. I think that's why it catches on.
0: Also, you know the fact that Bob Roth, who you've ref- referenced a couple times, is available to teach. You know, he's he works for the David Lynch Foundation. I've never actually met him, but you should have uh, I'm going to have him, uh, I, have for him on for sure. I want to reach out to him. He seems like such an interesting guy. But he he makes himself available, as far as I understand it, to to, to pretty prominent folks to teach them one on one, and I think that. I think that has made a big difference.
1: He does, and his team will. But I mean, they're not elitist in that. I've walked into the, that office, and Bob is teaching somebody for free, who's the furthest thing from famous. Like yes. the whole point of the David Lynch Foundation is—I mean, he'll tell you the numbers. Again, I'm not—I'm the furthest thing from a spokesman for any of it. They—I've taught hundreds and hundreds of thousands of inner-city kids to meditate, and veterans who have, uh, post, you know, uh, um, post-traumatic syndrome to, to meditate.
0: Yeah, in high schools, for sure, for sure. You know, l- switching gears just slightly, you've, you've, you've mentioned the name Tony Robbins a couple times. Yes. Um, uh, and I know you're producing, you're involved in producing a new documentary that's going to come out about him. Yeah,
1: Dave and I are executive producers of the documentary. Joe Berlinger, who's a great documentarian, you know, um, one of the, like, legendary documentarians. He made Some Kind of Monster, and he made the... Metallica uh, movie, right? He made the Paradise Lost movies, which oh, are these right, incredibly right, important right. Yeah, films. Yeah. Um, that were really important in figuring out who was really innocent and who was really the West uh, Memphis Three guilty the, in the yeah. West Memphis uh, Three murders. Um, uh, Burlinger made the film. Uh, Dave and I just introduced him to Tony.
0: But, so, what is your view? Because you you have established yourself in the course of this interview, I think, in a sort of rock solid way as a skeptical dude. Uh, what is your view of of Tony Robbins? I mean, I I, I actually I will admit again, I feel like I am having to admit this a lot in this interview that he's not somebody a, about whom I have an encyclopedic inside Encyclopedic knowledge But I know he does have his critics So what is your view of him
1: We all have our critics um, And yeah, well, uh, but, but I think um, Tony has fewer and fewer critics now And I think when, if you see Berlinger's um, movie You'll get a, a really clear Sense of what it is that uh, Tony Robbins does Again I'm not a spokesman for Tony But I, I'm a huge fan
0: The walking on coals thing?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, the walking on coals thing, to me, is a metaphor. And he talks about it as metaphor in his events. But that's the performance piece of what he does. Um, What works about what Tony Robbins talks about is uh, there's a – to me, he found a way to codify some questions that – uh, are really important. It, I think the easiest way, if you watch his TED talk, he gave a TED talk with Al Gore in the audience um, a few years ago. That's like one of the most popular TED talks. And uh, if you got, maybe you guys will link to it in the show notes or something. But it'll give you a really clear sense of what it is that he's interested in, which is like human beings and their why, their reason for doing the things that they do, and how he can help you figure out um, uh, whether you're doing things just reactively or whether you're doing things. For an actual reason, and um, I can tell you there were a few different times in my life where I read something that Tony said, or I listened to something, and I was able to translate it into language that made sense for me and helped me to get to the next level at something.
0: Sounds like it's been. I mean, useful.
1: I give you specific, like yeah. specific little things. They're sure. tiny things. Um, Dave and I were trying to get a movie made called *Solitary Man*, um, and which uh, it was very difficult to do. Uh, It was a small, independent movie. We had Michael Douglas wanting to do it and play the lead. I'd written it. It took me four years to write it. Dave and I are going to direct it together. And we'd had this conversation um, with some uh, agents who said, oh, you'll never be able to raise the money for this. And they gave us all these, like, technical reasons why. And um, I happened to be listening to a thing where Tony talked about the danger of listening to people who hold themselves out as experts or smarter than you in an area. If it's possible that you're smart enough to, like, do the research yourself read up on the thing and um, figure out, sort of uh, deconstruct their language and figure out if they're telling the truth or not. So I was like, oh, I can do that. And so I started reading a little bit more about how foreign sales were done. And um, he talks about uh, ways to sort of remind yourself to take action every day. So I made myself a pair of Nike ID shoes that had the word solitary on them uh, written 100 times. And I wore them every day for, until I got the movie greenlit. And I would look at the shoes, and they would remind me to do something to move Solitary Man forward. And I called these agents one day, and I said, okay, instead of you guys having those conversations, Dave and I are going to go have them. Set us up with meetings with these foreign salespeople. And they were like, they're bankers. You won't know how to talk to them. And I said, no, no, I'll know how to talk to them. Put me in the room with them. I'll get the money. We'll go make the movie. Within a week of making that call, we had the money because they realized we were going to go do it. Yes, it was hard what they had to do. But rather than be embarrassed by having us do it, they had to go out and figure out how to do it. And that was a direct result of, like, reading three things that the guy had said. Now, um, I don't. I'm not a fan of the walking on coal idea because I think it's possible people miss the metaphor and think it's actually dangerous. But I think that um, he's helped a lot of people and uh, I think that the work is like um, has helped me.
0: And I'm looking forward to watching the movie.
1: The movie uh, was the best reviewed thing of our career. It was uh, Roger Ebert's year end best list. The New York Times year end best list. It was a small movie, an art movie, like I said. um, But we knew that it was really an important thing uh, to get made and this really helped, helped us do it.
0: We only have a couple minutes left. In the remaining minutes, are there any other things that you wish I had asked? Any other projects you want? Or well, I mean, the only other
1: thing about? I would say is that if people like this kind of conversation, I, I host a podcast called The Moment, uh, where uh, I have conversations with people that are similar to this about uh, the in, inflection points, what I call the inflection points in their lives, moments where um, everything w- uh, was kind of in the balance. So I'll talk to someone like Seth Meyers about what it feels like to be on the cover of Uh, Time and Newsweek, uh, you know, as uh, like Bruce Springsteen before him, or I'll talk to Mario Batali about the night he had an aneurysm and what that changed. Um, And so I'll talk to authors that I love, uh, musicians, and uh, really drill down about how uh, they found the best version of themselves. So it's also in the iTunes store.
0: That sounds awesome. I'm going to subscribe. Please one do. last question. Go. I was reading something you wrote the other day about the things that you do to kind of put yourself in the, in the zone. Yeah. And, one, and, and we have a lot of things in common because you listed exercise, you listed meditation. But the other thing you mentioned, which is a little obscure and some of our audience, listeners or viewers might not know it, is you mentioned a band called The Hold Steady. Oh Love yeah. Those guys. Oh they're the phenomenal. I,
1: well, so that's the episode of my podcast you should start with is the episode Craig Finn, Craig and Tad. I got both of them in there.
0: Tad Kubler. Uh so uh, I've I I did a long uh since deceased/euthanized slash uh, show about indie rock uh many years ago um and it was called Amplified and I had them on and they are incredibly nice guys and they're also a great band. So what's your favorite Hold Steady song that we should play out the show with?
1: Uh, uh Hoodrat. Hood Red Friend. I mean, really, probably sequestered in Memphis, but um Hood Red Friend. Hood Red Friend, because people don't know that song.
0: It's a great and song. And it's a great
1: one. I mean, I could have said how resurrection really feels. But uh, what's yours? The Swish.
0: Right, sure. Right from well, the second right, song the first yeah. album. Phenomenal, phenomenal song.
1: Almost killed me, man. The hold steady almost killed me.
0: <laughs> my friend, my new friend, thank yeah, you very much for doing this. You were a phenomenal guest.
1: Well, what a pleasure. Great yeah. to talk to you about this. And uh I'm really glad you're doing this research. Tell me what you find.
0: Uh, oh. <laughs> as soon as I find out, um, everybody watch Billions. Everybody check out The Moment. Thank you again, Brian. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, so that was Brian Koppelman, who I think I'm I'm going to make one of my new friends. That guy's kind of awesome. Um, I want to add, uh, and I know, sorry, this is self-promotional so excuse me but i want this podcast to live for a long time and part of that is to is to uh beg you to subscribe to it uh to rate it preferably five stars i don't want to you know uh, work the refs here but five stars would be nice uh and uh to write a review Uh, it could be just a a short little review anything uh, but all that really helps us uh stay uh stay alive which we want to do because we want to be bringing you this podcast for a long time Uh, Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back soon with a new one. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
1: If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. (laughs) Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast.